As always, I just want to take a moment before we get started and welcome every single person who's here with us at UBC this morning. Um, you know, UBC people who are here every week or maybe new people who are here for the first time this Sunday, BFC people who are joining us for construction, um, folks who are online joining us on the live stream, no matter who you are, we are so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us uh, on this holiday weekend. And as um, uh, Sandy mentioned just a minute, a minute ago, we do thank the Lord so much for the freedom that we have in this country to be able to assemble religiously with freedom like this. And um, that's a blessing and a gift that uh, many countries don't have, and we need to uh, not take it for granted, uh, but to thank God for that precious gift. And um, I, was, I was reflecting on some of our um, assemblies this past week, and uh, here we are on 4th of July weekend. Um, you know what we were doing two years ago on uh, the first weekend of July like this? You know what we were doing? We were having our first outdoor service on the grass after 16 weeks of doing online services only uh, due to COVID. Uh, guys, that was two years ago, right? 265 people or something like that showed up for our outdoor service. Um, uh, you know, it was just crazy to me. You know what we were doing uh, one year ago on the first weekend of July? One year ago, we were having our first worship service back in this location on this site after having worshiped at Fairfield Commons Mall for seven and a half months. And uh, we had our outdoor service with 400 and some people that were out there. Guys, um, you know, if those of you who are here, those were special days for us as a church. And I'll just say this, God has been so faithful to our church over the past couple years, hasn't he? And he's just been so, so faithful. And so on this uh, 4th of July weekend, I'm grateful that we have the freedom to worship together like this. And uh, as Caleb mentioned earlier, um, this is a worship together weekend, which is kind of a unique type of Sunday for us. Um, a few Sundays a year, we have worship together Sundays, which is where we bring all of our elementary students into the worship service with the adults. And uh, it gives our elementary volunteers a little bit of a break. It also allows us to uh, let the kiddos experience the larger life of the church and what the worship services are like uh, with their parents and with their, the adults that they're with. And um, so this is a special worship together Sunday for us. And I'm glad that we have our elementary students in here with us. So if you're an elementary student who's in the room today, I'm really glad that you're in here. It's a blessing to have you guys. So um, today we're going to be continuing through in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, if you're new with us today, you'll be helped to know that we are slowly but surely working our way straight through the book of Acts. This is week 21 in our study, and uh, this is going to be about a 60-week study, so we're going to be here for a while. But today we're going to wrap up our study of Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9 today, we're going to be specifically looking at verses 32 through 43. And in these uh, in this passage, what we have is really uh, the story of two people, a man named Aeneas and a woman named Tabitha and the miracles that God worked in their life. And so we're going to work our way through each of these stories. I'm going to make several kind of teaching points and small application points along the way. But then we're going to end today with two very practical takeaways that tie into the big point of this story, the main point of this story. And what I really want you to leave here believing is the main point of this story. Like, this is the main point of this section of scripture, and I want you to believe it today. Here's the point. It's that the point of miracles is to point people to Jesus, okay? The point of miracles, as we read about them in scripture or as we experience them in our lives, the point of miracles are not miracles themselves. 
The point of miracles is to bring people to Jesus. Now, before we get in too far to our study, let's remember the basic background that leads us up to Acts chapter 9. Um, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gave his commission to his apostles that they were going to be his witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Um, that commission from Jesus starts in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 1 through 7, what we have is the disciples and the apostles' ministry in Jerusalem. Then we get to Acts chapter 8, and the witness of the apostles starts to go out beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And what was the thing that drove the apostles out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding regions? It was suffering and persecution. We saw that one of the main uh, antagonists against the church, one of the leading figures persecuting the church, was a man named Saul of Tarsus. We got introduced to him in Acts chapter 8. And uh, interestingly, as we studied the life of Saul so far, what we've seen is that uh, at one point in his life, he's traveling on the road from Jerusalem northern, uh, northward to Damascus. And in that moment, he has a radical, dramatic conversion experience where he trusts in Christ as Savior. He starts to preach Christ and his gospel. And uh, through a whole series of events that we've studied previously, he ends up having to make his way back down from Damascus to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, you guys can understand this, like the church in Jerusalem is like pretty skeptical about this guy. He's the one who had been arresting them and throwing them in prison, dragging them out of their homes, standing by and approving when martyr, when Christian, Christians were murdered for their faith. Um, and so now he's become a Christian and the church in Jerusalem is a little skeptical. So as Scott Dixon preached last week, uh, we read about a man named Barnabas who basically became an advocate for Saul and said, yes, he's truly converted and we should recognize him as a brother in Christ. And so uh, Saul started to preach the gospel in and around Jerusalem. Well, again, lots of details here, but a whole other group of Jews got mad and they wanted to kill him. So his new uh, brothers and sisters in Christ helped Saul kind of have this sneaky escape out of Jerusalem. And Saul ended up returning to his hometown in Tarsus. And so we ended last week in chapter 9, verse 31, um, which really says that the church was being built up and um, there was peace throughout the area because people were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the church was multiplying. All right, so it's this peaceful season of church growth that we are in now as we pick back up in chapter 9. And instead of the focus being on Saul, now the focus shifts back to Peter, who was really the main character in chapters 1 through 7 of Acts. Now we're going to focus back up on Peter and uh, kind of see what's going on in his life now. So let's pick up in verse 32 of chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to read along. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. The scripture says, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And I, I just want to pause right here and just say, um, I want to be precise about our word, the word saints here in the scripture. I know that some people who come to our church have a little bit of a Roman Catholic background or uh, maybe a religious background where when we think of the word saints, we think of um, people who have been kind of venerated by the church and been kind of... Um, recognized as being in this elite category of Christians. Um, I want you to understand when the scripture uses the word saints here, it's not talking about this um, elite level of Christian. It's talking about the regular 
believer, the community of regular believers who lived in this place called Lydda. Now, Lydda, uh, some of you um, may be very familiar with Lydda. Majority of us probably aren't. And so you know that I like to take every opportunity to put a map on the screen. So we're going to do that. And uh, let's go ahead and put this up. So you can see Jerusalem there on the map. If you just go west, northwest of Jerusalem, um, you can see Lydda there. It's about 22 miles from Jerusalem to Lydda. Just a couple interesting facts about Lydda. Um, if you read your Old Testament and you come across a, a town or a village called Lod, L-O-D, um, that's a reference, an Old Testament reference to the same place we're reading about today called Lydda. Um, for those of you guys who might be like, you know, th- theology buffs or you're really into church history, um, Lydda is the place where in 415 AD, the trial of Pelagius uh, occurred and he was deemed to be a heretic. So some of you will appreciate that and some of you will be like, don't care. Um, in more modern day terms, um, Lydda is the place where, um, where Ben Gurion Airport is in Israel. So if you fly internationally into Israel, most international flights fly right into that airport. And so that is where Lydda is in our modern day culture. So Peter traveled from Jerusalem to Lydda to minister to the saints that were there. And verse 33 says this, there he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. Can you imagine being bedridden for eight years? Maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you um, have gone through seasons of life where you've been bedridden. Maybe you've had to be a caregiver for someone who was bedridden. Um, So you know, you can imagine the bed sores that come. You can imagine the difficulty of turning someone to the left or the right. You can imagine the challenges that come with going to the bathroom or bathing, um, the atrophy of muscles, the loneliness that occurs. For some of you, you can experience this. For some of us, it's hard to imagine. But this man had been bedridden for eight years when the Lord brought Peter to Aeneas. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Peter Peter tells this man to do two things that are absolutely impossible for him. Rise and make your bed. And I just imagine being in the room hearing Peter say these words, rise, and then you see this man start to do it, right? For the first time in eight years, he was able to sit up, stand to his feet. For the first time in eight years, his muscles are working again and his atrophy was gone. Just imagine seeing that happen. This man rose. Peter says to him, not just rise, but make your bed. And uh, I think that's interesting because When we read it, we probably think of like, you know, mom and dad telling us to make our bed or we tell our kids to make their bed. And, you know, in our minds, it's like kind of like a temporary thing because if you have children, you know, you're going to have to tell them the exact same thing the next day, right? Um, But when Peter says it here in the original language, in the original uh, Greek language, it's actually a permanent meaning. 
Which means Peter looked at this guy and, and basically said, make your bed and put it away because you're not going to need that cripple's mat anymore. You're done with that. You won't need it. And so when I was reading this, it reminds me a lot of uh, Jesus's interaction with the paralyzed man at the pool in Bethesda in John chapter 5, um, where Jesus spoke to that man and said, get up, take your mat and walk. And I imagine Peter having observed Jesus's ministry and heard that story. Now Peter is, you know, really having a very similar situation occur with him and Aeneas. So notice how Peter speaks to Aeneas here. Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. So sometimes when we read about the life and the ministry of Peter, sometimes when he's speaking to people, he speaks to them and uh, pronounces a healing in Jesus's name. Other times he doesn't. In fact, in just a few verses, when we read the story of Tabitha, we're going to see that he doesn't specifically mention Jesus's names. But nevertheless, here's what we come to understand. Peter, something very important was in Peter's heart. And that is this. Peter knew that when miracles occur, it is the Lord who does them. Therefore, the Lord deserves all the glory. By the power of of Jesus Christ, this man rose up and was healed. Basic principle for all of us in this room. Peter understood this. I hope that we all understand this and believe this deep in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, the impossible becomes possible. Through Jesus Christ, the impossible can become possible. We see it all through the book of Acts. We see it in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. We see it throughout the New Testament. The impossible becomes possible through Jesus. Now, what is the result of Aeneas' healing? Look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, All the residents of Lydda and Sharon, which is kind of a plain of land on which Lydda existed, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So why had the Lord Jesus uh, healed Aeneas? Why did that happen? So that people would be turned to the Lord. So that they would be drawn to him. What's the whole point that I shared with you earlier? What's the point that's going to be very evident as we read through these miracle stories? Here's the point. The point of a miracle is to point people to Jesus. When, When the Lord brings about a miracle, he intends to bring people to his son. That's the point of these texts. The point of miracles is not the miracle itself. It's to bring people to Jesus. So that's the example that we see in the life of Aeneas. He was healed. All these people turned to the Lord. Hold communities. We get another example now in the life of a woman named Tabitha. Similar, um, very, the same point in a very similar story. So let's read about Tabitha who, as we read, will be uh, raised from death. Verse 36 says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. So once again, back to our maps, my beloved treasure, map of Lydia, you know, to the west again, uh, Joppa. It's about 12 miles uh, right up against the Mediterranean Sea, the coast there. Um, This is Joppa. This is the place where Tabitha lived. And so the scripture says, um, Back in verse 30, uh, 36, that there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which you guys snicker with all the elementary kids in the room. That's perfect, right? Uh, 
Honestly, I do the same thing. I think we just need to call it out, right? Because let's be honest, there are some funny names in the Bible, right? You guys, I just wrote down a few. You know that in the Bible, there's a man named Ham, a woman named Gomer. There's someone named Dodo. There's a man named Nimrod. And there's two brothers named Uz and Buzz. (laughs) True in the Bible. That's true story, right? So ever since I was a kid, Dorcas is one of those that just kind of stood out to me. And uh, I can't help but chuckle. In fact, yesterday, Rachel asked me like, Jason, what are you, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, I'm preaching on something I've never preached on before. I'm, I'm preaching on uh, the life of Dorcas. And uh, she goes, Dorcas? She goes, I bet she was married to a man named Nerdus, <laughs> which I thought was great. Um, so uh, I'm glad that she was also called Tabitha. So that I don't have to keep saying Dorcas all through this sermon. So, um, so um, Tabitha really is her, is her Aramaic name. Um, Dorcas is her Greek name. But here's what I want you to notice about this verse, verse uh, 38. It says that she was a disciple. She was a disciple and she was in Joppa. Now, here's the question. How had the gospel made its way to Joppa? How had she become a disciple? We get a hint if we just go back to uh, Acts chapter 8, right? We studied this a, a couple weeks, two or three weeks ago. If you remember in Acts 8, at the end of it, we're introduced to a man named Philip, um, Philip the Evangelist. He is the one who was traveling on the road to Gaza, south um, from Jerusalem, down south toward Egypt. And um, while he was traveling, he met an Ethiopian man. And that Ethiopian man came to faith and Philip baptized him right there. And then it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 39 and 40, here's what it says. Track with this. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But catch this. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, so if we can just go back to our map for just a second, and I really want to not just make a big deal out of the maps, but show you why this geography is important. If you can see the little arrows that are kind of pointing down, I know it's kind of small and hard to see in here, but Philip was in Jerusalem. He went south on the road to Gaza. He ended up in that bottom left-hand corner of the, um, of the map there. You can see the city called Azotus. And it says that from there, Philip went from town to town, various towns, preaching the gospel until he came to Caesarea. Well, what city is it that's on its way from Azotus to Caesarea? The city that's there is Joppa. So it's very likely that Philip, who led the Ethiopian man to Christ, is also the same man who led Tabitha or led... Uh, someone to Christ who led Tabitha to Christ. It's probably a result of Philip's ministry. But part of the reason why I'm showing you this is because I just want us to remember the big picture of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is showing us how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria outward to the ends of the earth. So when we read stories about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and the baptism there, it's not just like some kind of 
side story that's not connected. It's connected right back here to chapter 9 and how the gospel made its way to Joppa, which is what we're reading about today. So all these things are interconnected. So now we've seen a little bit probably about how Tabitha became a disciple in Joppa. Verse 36 says this about her. It says that she was full of good works and acts of charity. What a great thing to have said about you. You're full of good works and acts of charity. In the New Testament, the word charity is most often used um, to describe people who give help and, and compassion to the poor. And so we get a picture of what this woman Tabitha was like. She worked and acted on behalf of the poor and the needy. And let me just say this. There are probably some of you in our church who are strongly drawn to do the same. In your heart, there's a tender spot for the poor and the needy. You, you have a sense of passion that arises in you when there's an opportunity to help the poor and the needy. If that's you, I want to say something to you. I'm so glad that you're in our church. Part of our mission, our, our mission statement as a church is to help people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who know him and make him known. And so we as a church want to grow to see every disciple of Jesus Christ in our church make Christ known in a handful of specific ways. One of those is we want to see people make him known mercifully. And what we mean by mercifully is compassionately giving good deeds and actions in Jesus' name to those who are most vulnerable and needy among us. We also want to make Christ known resourcefully using our resources, our time, our talents, our treasures to make Christ known. In other words, uh, over time, we want to see our church become full of Tabithas. We, we want to see our church become full of people whose lives are full of works and deeds of mercy and compassion and charity all for the glory of Christ. That's what Tabitha was all about. We're going to see even more about this in her life in the coming verses. Look at verse 37. Verse 37 says, In those days, she became ill and died. And I just want to pause and address something that comes up from time to time. Here's a woman who had dedicated her life to following the Lord as a disciple and doing acts of charity for the poor and the needy. And yet here she was, gone. She died. And I think sometimes when we see people who have loved the Lord and they've lived their life in service to others and they die unexpectedly, we ask the question of, why, Lord? Why would you allow that good person to die and let this other bad person live? I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I think we all have times we look at someone's life and we're like, you know, they just, they went home far too soon. But here's the reality of life. And this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible. Because the Bible is an honest book. It doesn't paint some picture for us that if you follow Jesus, your life will be free of hardships and you'll never have a problem. The Bible tells us that in the life of the Christian, there will be challenges And here's one of the realities of life that the Bible makes clear to us. Unexpected death comes upon both the sinners and the saints. Unexpected death comes upon both sinners and saints. So, we need to be ready when it comes. We need to be ready when it comes. Are you ready? 
Everybody in this room, are you ready? Because just as death unexpectedly came for a good person like Tabitha, it could come for you and for me. Look at verse 37. It says, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So this was Jewish custom to take a dead body and wash it and usually prepare it with spices and such to deal with the the smell and the odor. And they would, for a short time, open up a room, usually in someone's home, where folks who were grieving and wanted to pay their last respects could come and, um, and grieve with the family and give their, their final respects and such. That's what's going on here. In verse 38, it says this, Since Lydda was near Joppa, about 12 miles distance, you could walk it in three or four hours, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, right? they heard, oh, Peter, he's in Lydda? They had probably heard the story that he had just healed Aeneas from paralysis. It says that they sent two men to him, urging him, saying, hey, please come to us without delay, right? They want him to heal Tabitha the way that he had just done with Aeneas. And so verse 39 says, so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas or Tabitha had made while she was with them. And so here we get that deeper look into Tabitha's life. It says that uh, she had made these garments and tunics for widows while she was there, right? Um, She used her skill set. She could sew. We might say it this way. Tabitha was a seamstress for Christ, right? Here we have uh, with us for several weeks this summer, an organization called Builders for Christ. But you want to hear something really cool? Guess who just so happens to be here with Builders for Christ this week on this particular, while we're preaching on this particular passage. They bring with them from time to time a, wim- a group of women who have a sewing ministry. This particular week, they're here. And they're going to be set up over at UBC East, sewing all week long. They're going to make these blankets and things that we're going to end up giving to Miami Valley Women's Center to give to mothers in need, which is no coincidence at all, not just because we're going through this passage, but also because of the recent SCOTUS decision and the importance of the church to be involved with pregnancy centers. And here we have an opportunity to do this, right? So if you see these ladies working this week, encourage them because... You know, I'm so grateful that the Lord has brought them to us this week to do this simple act of sowing and blessing somebody with um, a gift like that. You know, I wonder, I wonder if you've ever received a gift that someone has sewn together for you. Like we, in my family, um, a few years ago, we had one of our loved ones pass away and one of our other family members took some of his old flannel shirts and uh, cut them up in pieces and then Um, sewn them together and made pillows out of them and handed them out to the family. And so now, you know, we, we have those pillows as a a really special, meaningful gift. And, and maybe for some of you, you have something similar that someone has sewn together for you. And, And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because to some, Tabitha's sewing ministry may have seemed like such a small thing. You know, to sew a garment, to sew a tunic, it almost seems insignificant, but I want to make it clear, there is no act of service done in Jesus' name that is insignificant, no matter how small it may seem. 
You can use whatever talent you have for the glory of God. You children who are in this room right now, you can use your talents and gifts for the glory of God. Adults in this room, you may feel like you might not really have anything to offer. Use your small talents, your gifts, and your abilities for the glory of God because nothing is insignificant when it's done in service to Jesus Christ. And here was Tabitha, a seamstress for Christ, a woman full of charity, and now you, we have this scenario here where you can imagine these widows who had been blessed by her gifts they're standing at her funeral service holding the garments that she made for them and here's what happens next verse 40 it says but Peter put them all outside right he he asked all the widows and everybody in the room to step outside and he knelt down and prayed and turning to her body he said Tabitha arise And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Peter says, Tabitha, arise. And I can't help but wonder, once again, is he reflecting back on the ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus met a man named Jairus who had a young daughter who had passed away, and her name wasn't Tabitha, her name was Talitha one letter difference where Jesus looked at Talitha and he said, Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. And now Peter is here saying, Tabitha, arise. And she rose. Verse 41 says, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Can you imagine walking into that room? Like one minute ago, you were just grieving over her lifeless body. Now she's sitting up smiling. I mean, it's amazing. And so verse 42 says, and it became known throughout all Joppa. I bet it did. And many believed in the Lord. And he, talking about Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So let me just say this. Uh, Peter stays in Joppa with a man named Simon the Tanner. And you might think like a little detail like that is really insignificant in Scripture, but it's actually really cool. And I don't have time to get into it all today, but if you come back next Sunday, we'll get into it even more and we'll see why it's actually a significant detail. But notice that it says after Tabitha was raised, it says that many believed in who? In the Lord. It doesn't say many people believed in Peter and all of his magical powers. He wasn't a showman. He wasn't trying to garner attention for himself. They are believing in the Lord. Because why? The same thing is true in Tabitha's story that was true in Aeneas' story. And that's this. The point of a miracle is to point people to Jesus. The Lord brings miracles in order to bring people to his son. Right? That's the big point of this story. Now, we've covered a handful of little like personal kind of application points and takeaways already, but I want to end by giving you two takeaways that tie into the big point of this story and all the other miracle stories in the book of Acts, right? The, the, the whole point of these is, is to point people to Jesus. If all we do is read these stories and we just get fixated on the miracles, like we're going to miss the real point. The point is that miracles, Jesus, God works miracles in order to bring people to Jesus. Now with that in mind, Here are two applications that I want to call us to today. First one is this. Church family, we need to believe that our God absolutely can do the impossible. 
Over and over in the book of Acts, we have seen the mighty works of God. He does the impossible. Yes, we, we, we need to kind of keep Bible study principles in mind like we've talked about in several messages leading up to this. We don't, we don't read this text as a prescriptive text. We read it as a descriptive text. It's not telling us how things should be done. It's telling us the way things were done. In other words, uh, I don't want you to read this story and just think, oh, wow, like if we just say the exact words as Peter, Jesus Christ heals you, everyone will be healed. We ought not read this passage and think to ourselves, next time we're at a funeral, if we just send everybody out of the room and then we kneel down by the casket, we can speak to a dead body and make it rise. Like that's, that is not the point of this text. It is manipulative to, for it to be taught that way. But the, one of the main points of this text is that we have a God that can do whatever he wants. He can heal the lame. He can raise the dead. He can make the impossible possible. And as I've shared with you before, I believe that God can do what seems impossible because I've seen him do it. Like I have friends who have a son who is living today who was dead for 15 minutes. And now he's alive. I have a friend right now whose mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. No medicine, no treatments that way. Went in one day got scanned the next day, and all of her pancreatic cancer was gone, okay? There's no explanation other than God. So I've, I've seen it happen. I wholeheartedly believe God can do uh, whatever seems impossible to us. He can, he can do it. He can make it possible. Now, does God always do that? No. Can he always do it? Yes. He healed Aeneas. He raised Tabitha. He, think about this. He saved Saul. He restored Peter. He brought revivals to whole towns and communities at once. Listen, nobody would have thought those things were possible. Yet God did it. I believe that God can make the impossible possible. I mean, just think what he's done over the past two weeks. Roe got overturned. Who would have thought that was going to happen in our lifetime? Like a few of you were like, man, I've, I've actually believed, right? The rest of us were like, we've said we believe, but probably we really didn't. You know, like God did it. So God can do what seems impossible to us. And yes, here we are. Like we see these mighty works of God. So believe the teaching of scripture and know that for our God, nothing is impossible, including the conversion of the most unlikely people to be saved in your life, including the revival of entire towns and cities, and including the healing of the paralyzed and the raising of the dead. God can do it. But when it comes to healings and signs and wonders and miracles, here's the second big takeaway that I want to share with you. When you read this text, don't miss the greater spiritual miracle in the midst of the lesser physical miracle. Here's what I mean. Guys, we have two miraculous accounts here. A paralyzed guy gets healed. A dead woman gets raised. Admittedly, those are incredible. They are fascinating. I would long to see that in my lifetime. You probably would too. Some of you may, some of you might not, right now might be praying every day that the Lord would bring a healing into your life. 
You desperately want it. You're asking the Lord for it. Some of you have been in situations where you've lost a loved one and you have asked Jesus, please raise this person from the dead. And I want to be clear that I absolutely believe that God can do that if he chooses. But we also have to understand as we read the Bible, God's word, he only does that in rare occasions. There were other sick people in Lydda and Joppa that didn't get healed. There were other people that died and didn't get raised from the dead. So yes, the Lord can do it. Does he always do it? No. And when he does, he seems to do it on very rare occasions. And here's what I've got us to understand. Even when the Lord says no to our requests for miracles and healings, I want you to know something. That does not change the fact that God is sovereign and in control. And it does not change the fact that he loves you. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love never changes for you. But here's the thing, and I I want, whenever we read miracles or start talking about miracles, I want you to, to understand this. Even if God provides a miracle and allows you to miraculously live today, you still need to be ready to die tomorrow. Because I want you to think about this in light of this passage. The most amazing of physical miracles are temporary at best. Aeneas was healed of his paralysis, he still died later. Tabitha, raised from the dead, she still died later. Every person that Jesus Christ himself actually healed still died later. So even if we miraculously live today, we must be ready to die tomorrow, which is the point of this whole story, that through these miracles, people were brought to the Lord. They came to salvation In both Aeneas' story and Tabitha's story, the point isn't ultimately the miracle, the physical miracle. The point is the spiritual miracle of people coming to Jesus. So, don't get fixated on the healing of the body during this lifetime to the point where you miss the salvation of your soul. Because here's the promise to those who have received the salvation of the soul one day there will be a resurrection from the dead. And we will receive glorified bodies. And sorrow and sickness and suffering and weeping and death will be no more for the believer. When God does grant miracles and healings on this earth, in this lifetime, the point of the miracle is to point people to Jesus. So believe in him. Believe in him. And he will raise you to new life. Life in this physical, temporary lifetime. And eternal life glorified with Jesus forever. Lord, we want to thank you for this portion of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would grow us in our faith. Believing, Lord, that you can do the things that seem impossible to us. Lord, we, um, our faith can be so small. Thank you, Lord, that you can move mountains out of faith that is the size of a mustard seed. So, Lord, grant us faith 
to trust you, to believe that you indeed are omnipotent and all-powerful. You can do anything. And we thank you, Lord, when we have these little momentary glimpses into your supernatural power. Thank you for the way that they strengthen our faith and increase our faith. Thank you for the account that we have here in Acts chapter 9. But Lord, I pray that the longing of our heart wouldn't be for miracles in and of themselves, but that the longing of our heart would be for Christ. I ask, Lord, if there's anybody here today who is praying to you day by day for relief from physical ailments or healings, Lord, we sympathize and pray alongside those people saying, Lord, we want you in this lifetime to provide healing for those who are sick and ill and hurting. And we believe that you can. And so, Lord, we ask that you would. And Lord, at the same time, we say that even if you do not, we pray that you would give us the grace to suffer and die well. And that you might be glorified in our faithfulness to you, even in the midst of suffering. Lord, I pray that uh, you would let everybody in this room be ready to die, whether that day comes sooner or later. And Lord, that if there's anybody here today who is not prepared to meet you, I pray that today they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross in their place to pay for their sins. That they would trust in him for forgiveness of their sin and for eternity with you in heaven. So Lord, meet every person who's hearing these words right now, every person who has heard the truths of your word today. Lord, meet every single person where we are. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what you have to say. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.